0: I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 16, coming to you live and direct from Oakland, California, on the heels of Jazz Fest 50. The New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival is over. We're back in California, and so grateful to be back with you. are back, the Up for Life podcast, after a brief pause for the cause while we were down in New Orleans, down at the Jazz Fest, back in California, and settling in, and wanted to deliver a podcast episode as soon as possible. Uh, Before we get into the interview portion, you know I like to do my little thank yous for the Up for Life podcast, and who else? Then the great Crescent City of New Orleans and the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Not just the event in the city, but all its inhabitants and everybody who works together to make Jazz Fest such a -a one-of-a-kind event. This was my blessed 17th year down at the Jazz Fest, and I feel like it's as good, if not better, than ever. I was lucky enough to attend the Jazz and Heritage Festival fairgrounds six of the eight days and no shortage of amazing night shows each and every night till the wee hours. I'll have my customary wrap-up article on Live for Live Music in a few days, and uh, we'll be covering a lot of Jazz Fest content and New Orleans content in the next couple of episodes as I was stoked to lock in a few interviews while I was down there, two of which you will hear today. But first, a deep bow to the city of New Orleans, to folks like the BackBeat Foundation, to all the bartenders and servers and Lyft and Uber drivers and taxicab drivers, uh, the list goes on. Of course, nobody deserves more thanks than the musicians who uh, dig deep for inhuman feats of endurance to play three and four shows a day uh, over the course of the nearly two weeks of New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. There are so many incredible shows, Uh, too many to name, but I might do a little segment on uh, some of my faves, but I'm going to put that energy into the wrap-up article first. So for now, just a deep bow and a thank you to Jazz Fest Culture the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and the Crescent City itself. We are in forever in gratitude and in debt for your benevolence. So look forward to a heavy lean on New Orleans content over the next few episodes as we work through half a dozen amazing interviews that I was stoked and grateful to, uh, get on tape while i was down there you're listening to stanton and skerrick's 20th jazz fest show from Tipitinas on sunday april 28th Uh, stanton moore drummer skerrick robert walter who coincidentally is today's feature guest as well as scott metzger and andy hess made up this band and you're hearing sprung monkey the stanton moore original Uh, that's scott metzger absolutely shredding in the background and now we got skerrick doing the same so i'll be playing a fair amount of dope jazz fest music uh as well over the next few episodes so yeah just wanted to take a moment and offer uh thanks and praises uh, to the city of new orleans the festival the culture and a single out a couple of folks that taught me a long time ago uh how to get down in the crescent city uh, first and foremost is my late friend, Andrew Laganella. We called him Lag, great dude from Haddonfield, New Jersey that I grew up with who went to college at Loyola in New Orleans and invited us down for Oysterhead in 2000 for the first time I went to Jazz Fest. And Andrew uh, was basically the portal that delivered me to that great city and its culture. And sadly, Andrew passed away not that long ago. Um, but his spirit lives on in all of his friends and family. And I think of them often when I'm in New Orleans. I also want to shout out my good friend, Brandon Taracone, who no longer lives in New Orleans, but maybe more than anyone else ever showed me the ropes of how to get around that city and how to connect with people and where to go to hear what music um, who I should be uh, connected to, connected with. Um, Brandon was just a, uh, a wealth of resources and knowledge and understanding. He's not from New Orleans, but spent better part of a decade down there, and uh, somebody that I leaned on for some know-how and heads-up for probably my first half-dozen jazz fests. So, I want to shout out Brandon. Hope you make it back to Jazz Fest one day. I know you got a beautiful wife and two young children. Makes it difficult, but who knows? You know, it'd be an honor and a privilege to strut those Crescent City streets with you once again, my friend. So, if you're listening out there, Brandon, thank you. And uh, the last person I'm going to thank is the owner of the Blue Nile, Jesse Page, who appears at the end of this podcast with about a, a 27 minute interview. Uh, but so you'll find out in his interview just why i'm making a point to single him out and thank him but he's an incredible guy huge Jamiroquai fan and probably like the coolest and most benevolent club owner i've encountered in my time covering the music industry Uh, he made it a point to connect with me and i'm proud to call him a friend and an ally and he's uh Really doing something to be proud of down there at the Blue Nile on Frenchman Street in New Orleans. So you'll hear more about that, both in my article coming on Live For Live Music and in a little while. After the Robert Walter interview, we're going to talk to Jesse Page about all of the above and a little bit more. Very inspirational uh, story. So with that, I'm going to uh, delve into Robert Walter's feature interview, which took place during this past Jazz Fest. Interview with Robert Walter of the Grey Boy All Stars and Mike Gordon Band, most recently, and of course his own Robert Walter's 20th Congress. Uh, right now you're listening to Jan Jan from uh, Robert Walter with Gary Bart's Spirit of 70, which was the first Robert Walter record I ever owned. On, it on vinyl from ubiquity records we got it back in 97 when i was in burlington vermont uh, going to college up there my man clark sutton had the hook at ubiquity and we got like a box of vinyl from them and uh included in that was robert walter spirit of 70 so pretty much since that time in my life, 97, when I was first introduced to the Grey Boy All-Stars at Club Toast in Burlington back in April of ninety seven. Um I've just been a huge fan of everything Robert does. Uh, I was a classically trained pianist for many years and played keyboards and organs for a while and was pretty serious about it back then and Robert was a hero of mine in that regard and even though I kind of stepped away from playing the keys, uh my fandom remained intact. And uh, I had a short conversation with Robert at Club Toast when I was underage and wrapped with him a little bit. Uh, and as I recall, I, I got him a drink, even though I was not of age. I'd asked somebody to buy it for me to give to him. Scotch, I believe, if I recall correctly. Um, but, yeah, just had a... Uh, an interaction with him in a very formative time in my life as a music fan, and always kind of covered the Grey Boys and the sidecar projects like Carl Denson's Tiny Universe and Robert Walters 20th Congress, the latter of which Robert has sort of reconvened every few years for a record or a tour, or both. Most recently, uh, a very different sounding Robert Walter 20th Congress album called Space Suit. And, I don't know, it's just hard to explain. He's just been omnipresent uh, in the music scene for the past two decades. And, you know, he's a throwback guy playing that jazz-funk-rare-groove style, but he's always willing to take chances, whether it's an obscure recording of Grateful Dead's Dark Star or a ferocious take on Judas Priest, You've Got Another Thing Coming. Um, Robert has always been willing to sort of push the boundaries of the norm when it comes to the music that he creates. So, naturally, thanks to his wonderful manager, uh, Leslie DeHaven, I was able to secure almost an hour with Robert uh, the day before his birthday down in New Orleans during Jazz Fest. So the first of the Jazz Fest interviews for the Up For Life podcast will be none other than Robert Walter, and we touch on all the aspects of his career and his journey, dating back to Halcyon days in SoCal and San Diego, punk rock and hip hop, all the way up through uh, the formation of the Grey Boy All-Stars and how that actually took place, and then a few of the different colorful directions. That Robert's career has taken. So without any further ado, I present to you my conversation with Robert Walter from New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the Up Full Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Gett. Here in the Lower Garden District. New Orleans, Louisiana, Jazz Fest 50 2019. I'm lucky and privileged to be sitting next to Robert Walter of the Grey Boy All Stars and his own 20th Congress, and most recently Mike Gordon's band and about, I don't know, a dozen different combinations down here in New Orleans every year.
1: Yep, there's a there's a lot of different little lineups that a lot of them have sort of become bands out of one off things from here. But
0: right on, yeah. Well, Man, i got to say, I've been a fan for a long, long time, going back to when I was in college, and uh, always kind of wanted to pick your brain, so I'm glad that the rest of the world gets to hear it. Cool. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, man. It. So while we're here, let's talk a little bit about Jazz Fest, just to kind of kick things off. Uh, this is somewhat of, a, you know, not somewhat, this is a tradition for you for going on two decades now, yep. and uh, you have a lot of deep-rooted relationships with people that you made music. You lived here for a time, am I right? Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how did you first arrive in the New, new Orleans music scene?
1: Well, the first time I came here, it's fun, I'm playing at the Maple Leaf tonight, but, um, which won't be tonight when this airs, probably. Right. But, um, <laughs> but when I, I came here, I was into, I was a fan, I was a pianist and I was a fan of Professor Longhair's records and uh, James Booker a little bit. And um, so my grandpa as a high school graduation present bought me a ticket. Had a little vacation to come down in New Orleans in 1988 and and they came my grandparents came with me right <laughs> they were in a room next door to me so we did a lot of sort of lame tourist stuff with them not that that's not cool too I mean this beautiful city but um, but I was all about the music thing so I convinced them to go to the Maple Leaf bar with me to see Rock and Doopsy Senior at the time the, the and um, and uh, I just fell in love with the place I played piano at the set break um, and then I got people were cheering for it and mm. it was like it kind of hooked me and I was like one day I'm going to move to New Orleans so ever since then it's been a thing and the Maple Leaf in particular has been the place when I, when I lived here I lived three blocks away so I could go there all the time and I just you know it's been sort of like the epicenter to me okay and not the most beautiful venue not and sometimes things don't work but it just has a it really captures uh, the essence of the city to me it's you know it's weird enough and rooted in tradition enough.
0: Yeah. yeah. You can feel it in the walls and like when you're in there and people are performing and and there's just a lot of, like you said, history and yeah, it the essence. It feels
1: like it embraces people being eccentric or unique, Yeah, you
0: know? Going back to like Booker when he like lived yeah. upstairs.
1: Yeah, and the whole like poetry thing that comes out of there and right. there, it's just like a, you know, it's Land of the Misfit Toys kind
0: of. <laughs> right on. Yeah, man. Uh, I, when I've, I've been coming down here since 2000 and like pretty much has seen you in one combination or another every year.
1: I feel like I was just, probably just before that by a few years. Right. 96, 97 probably when I first started coming.
0: Yeah, when did you uh, start to see, cause you predated me for a few years, and I feel like I was a part of like the, the gold rush of like when Superfly and the Super Jams and, and like Jazz Fest uh, changed, and has been changing ever since, but when did you, or what, maybe what differences did you notice from like when you first arrived Well I here? feel
1: like the, there was night shows from when I started coming in the 90s, of course. There was like regular night shows, but there wasn't so much of that next, the late night, the shows starting after hours. Right. And there was a few of them, but they were mostly bands too. And then Superfly started that Super Jam, Right. And that was kind of the first time I heard of that. Like
0: That's what not, got me here.
1: Not that New Orleans didn't already have a tradition of people playing in each other's bands and they're being weird. I mean, it's, it's very consistent with what, Goes on here. Right, there are bands, and I love when there's a solid band. But a lot of people were casuals, and you never. When I was here, we I sometimes didn't know who the musicians were till I showed up. You know, like oh, you go to the <laughs> go to this place at this time, and somebody's gonna play drums. And it, it, you know, but there's a common language, and there's a common repertoire, and there's a there's some things that you can always get through the gig with with musicians who understand this scene and this music. So I think that it's not so removed from it to to have that as an idea, like take, right. take the best guys from a bunch of bands see what happens. Um, but that was, there was few and far between those shows. And my band, 20th Congress, used to do a Wednesday night at the Maple Leaf late for years as a kind mm-hmm. of a tradition. And that was super late and Super 5 promoted that. But, um, but there wasn't like every night multiple choices at 2 a.m. Right, right. <laughs> and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And lately, like in the last five years, it's gotten even more crazy. Like it's sort of Turned up to eleven. Yeah, yeah. I've or noticed. Better that. and worse, you know. It's-
0: agreed, agreed, and that's something I talked about with a couple of my guests yesterday. Um, and I just went from a musician's perspective because I, and we, you obviously saw on social media. We've had a lot of discussions and stuff, and I think that you really uh, are able to exist in both paradigms because you have these quote unquote one offs but they're annual and the relationships are there there's like mutual respect it's not like showing up at the gig and not knowing who's there these are your friends and your and your collaborators how does that work how does it work when like you do a Frequinox and then you do a Worship My Organ like uh, it's just understood amongst the musicians or
1: are, I like when there's some kind of conceptual element to it so you know one of the things with Worship My Organ for one thing it's two organs and there's no guitar or bass or anything so it, it's sort of Automatically becomes unique, right? You know what I mean. It's just an unusual, like instrumentation. Um, but there's also a real sort of, and I, I don't know if we discussed this or it was just intuitive, but it's definitely we've discussed it since we started playing that no songs allowed, right? So it's sort of bad form to to even. Play a song. I mean, sometimes I'm going to quote something, right. but we're never trying to actually play a song. It's supposed to be purely improvised and purely in the moment. So there's no pre-planning. Don't bring in any stuff. Don't send guys stuff to learn. Right. It's supposed to be like we exist right now in the moment. And there's also an idea that we're trying to compose on the spot rather than just play jams or solos or whatever. Right. There used to be a joke that whoever played the first solo of the night had to buy everybody around. <laughs> but, and I don't know if we ever actually enforced that rule, but there was a thing like nobody solo for a while and let it sort of cook and let something happen and earn the solo rather than like it's real easy for us to be like oh well what do we do now somebody take a solo right it's real lazy it's like let the thing wait till it needs the solo and then bring that in and then Deitch is the X factor of that because he he does it's a free improvisation but it's very mindful of dance floor and fit sort of to make the music still physically appealing and not so cerebral you know? right? Have and some he's pocket just, and, and he really believes in that and I, I do too so I right. you know in a way like Marco and Scared get kind of freaky and we kind of try and pull it into a funk thing and the, sort of the rubber band of that makes it real great
0: yeah yeah it's definitely a magical thing and then and,
1: Frequinox is all songs and right. there's an attempt to sort of pay tribute to the tradition of funky New Orleans music right yeah.
0: and that's a cool like multi-generational thing because you got Big Chief and yeah. Galactic Guys and you and I was like, uh, you know, I was looking back at first thing I ever had from you was Spirit of Seventy, and we'll get that. But yeah, like Money Shot come out, and that was on Fox City Records. I yep. was a Bay Area record company making New Orleans tunes, because like, yep. Galactic was on there. Dan's first Yeah, um, stands for yeah All Cooked Out, which is really the first Garage GarageBitwine album in essence. Yep. Um, I was just curious, like, because you're a California guy, and I want to talk a little about SoCal, but um, that symbiotic, because I live in the Bay now, have for a few years, there's like a symbiotic relationship and especially back then in the late nineties, early two yeah. thousands. Um, and you were a part of that. Like yeah, you were a part of breaking that down.
1: We sort of the Dan Prothro, who owns Fox city and lives here now. Right. And he was always had a, a real interaction with people from down here. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel like it was secret thing, but it just felt like there's so much cool flavor coming out of this and it wasn't it felt like it was still an oral tradition and people were still learning music from their, their forefathers and from the scene instead of like just from records, which is in California where more, more how I learned. I right. was like a record geek and I'd collect stuff and I'd look for weird, you know, stuff that none, I was into being into what none of my friends were into. Right. And here it's like a, a little bit, you're proud of the scene and proud of the city. I think there's something that comes cool from, that comes from both. Um, But me and Dan have talked about that, that we were definitely coming from like a a record geek culture. Right. And to be down here around this real oral, more musical tradition was was compelling. And I think both, like we met Stanton and those guys and they liked what we were doing too. Right. It was a little more left of center. So like, I don't know, you know, it was mutual admiration society.
0: So yeah, I always wondered what the roots of that were because it's Galacta alive now. Came, you still do the trio with Stanton and there's a whole lot of that yeah, still happening.
1: Galacta came early on and opened for Grey Boy All Stars at the Green Circle Bar, which was our local Wednesday night gig, just as a local band.
0: In San Diego yeah, or
1: San in San Diego. Okay. And I think that Dan had sort of brought them out there and then they ended up recording. But they but it was the first time we saw another band that was into the same shit as All us. Right. Like at the time it was like Punk rock and metal bands, and the funk bands were like Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of like right. influenced the from our scene. It was like not happening or real R and B, which we were not any of those. It was sort of an appreciation of old funk 45s through the minds of kids that were into hip hop and rock music.
0: Right. But you, you know, were into, there's a
1: filter on it. It's not like we're authentically funk
0: musicians. We're right.
1: it, we're people who like got into it second hand. We liked rap records, and we're like, what did they sample? Right. That's where it came from for me. You know?
0: Yeah you were like a punk rock and hip hop kid before before all that right yeah I was in, in I was in
1: like you know punk bands and um and playing, I liked, playing I liked, keys in punk bands well originally drums okay I was a drummer at first and then I was in a couple of bands where it was sort of you know I played like sampler and stuff so it was like sound effects and weird okay. sort of like the I guess the guy. sort of dub yeah. industrial experimental influence upon it but the bands were very aggressive and noisy and stuff You know. right
0: on not to fast forward too far, but you can hear that aspect of you in spacesuit—the dub oh, right. creative, like sort of yeah. sound effects factor. Yeah, I always know? liked that sort of yeah. like.
1: I love King Tub. I love like Jamaican yeah. dub records. King Tubby, Bad so, Professor, all that. It's just an amazing. Um, it's just an amazing way to like abstract some music that's simple and sort of even folksy. Like like roots yeah. reggae is very like three chord natural and just by picking and choosing what you hear or don't and adding a couple of delays it becomes this whole cosmic world it's like to get to outer space
0: yeah (laughs) you know yeah i love those dub records for sure um it's just interesting to hear all the influences and stuff because i'm going to get to the point where you like the gray boys because that's where i was introduced to you and yeah and that was my first band that
1: i quit my day job and really became a a musician yeah
0: Well, I wanted to maybe hear it straight from the horse's mouth because we've always talked before the internet, we talked about it amongst ourselves and tried to figure it out because when I was in college, um, somehow somebody had to hook up at Ubiquity Records and we got like a crate of all these vinyl records, yeah. including Spirit of 70 and uh, and the DJ Boy freestyling and uh, all that stuff. And then right around that time, we're just hearing you and there's no internet to figure out what's what. So how did it go down? Did he basically like bring you all into the studio? How did you become the... Gray so Boy All-Stars.
1: The story is, he had already made Freestyling. First, okay. he made a record Gray Bricks, which is yeah, just it's awesome. bricks. Yeah. yeah, And then then Carl started hanging around with Gray and um, Harold Todd also. And Mark Antoine, this guitar player. who He, right. he went on to have a big, smooth jazz career <laughs> right. of all weird things. but um,
0: They're all over that Freestyling record, those but guys.
1: Yeah, so they were all just hanging out with Gray at his house. Right. And he had a little studio there and he would play beats and then they'd improvise over him and they'd start sort of editing that and build these songs around guys improv- improvising over break beats basically. Right. And, um, and then he was about to release that album and he, he was, had a record release party at the Elbow Room in San Francisco and he's like, it would be more interesting if we had a band. Right. So he, we learned a few of the tunes off that album, but also he gave us this great mixtape of a bunch of old soul jazz. So we learned a bunch of those tunes, and that I still have the tape, and it's awesome. It's like got the sort oh, of the wow. template for everything that we. I mean, in ways still what we're doing. Yeah. And so we learned a bunch of those songs that we performed, and it, it was supposed to be one gig, but we loved it, and everybody got along great. And um, with a couple of personnel changes that happened, like in the first few weeks, Mark Antoine left, um, Harold Todd eventually left. So then it became the band that it's been for a long time right with Um Zach Nader eventually left the band right. but but beyond that it's been the same people core four yeah right and um and then Aaron our drummer now is actually at like he probably not the Elbow Room but he was like at our first gig in San Diego after that like he's okay. been a homie from like like the, the old 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 days like the first he was good friends with okay. Zach always oh, so uh, Right he like, hang out with Zach and knew all that stuff. So he's been there for every part of it, too.
0: Yeah, I didn't know he had those type of roots, but he's actually been your drummer for a really long time. Now he's been time. there longer, longer than Zach, probably, right. yeah. Right.
1: And then Zach's been playing with Carl, right. so he's kind of back at playing. He just didn't, he didn't play music for a while. Right, right. Um, but it's, yeah, so that, we just kind of started. We actually, it's kind of cool, because we just kept doing it because we liked it, not because we thought we were going to be successful or anything right. else, it was just super fun. It was a real side band for everybody at the time. I was in punk bands and I was like, this would be fun to do some other thing.
0: Right. I wondered how you arrived at that because, you know, we talked about you being into punk and, like, just other stuff. And, you know, there wasn't a lot, uh, cur- really anything going on at that time that was like what the great boys were. I'm going to say, like, when I was in college, you know, I loved, like, Fish. I grew up on the dead. I loved hip-hop, Beasties. Right. I'm a huge metalhead. But... You know I just had like no frame of reference other than I recognized like the itcher thing break of like all oh, that's punk up up to get beat yeah. down by brand newbian until I went to club toast in April of ninety seven in Burlington Vermont, and as I've told you about this before, it was fucking first time I ever heard anything like that. I had two ex'es on my hands, you know, still at yeah. our age, and uh basically that
1: was the goal we were trying to like get people because I heard those records I heard that mixtape the great and then Right after that, I started collecting records. Okay, was like, I gotta find more of this shit. But it was like, where's this been my whole life? I hadn't really. That's heard how that. I felt. I'm saying, walked in there. I knew the yeah. Meters and James Brown, but I didn't right. know like the outer reaches of the like the jazz guys. All made funky records. Right. everybody did. Right, you know? and that's what I
0: figured out through. Because you guys would play songs and like would end up being like Jan Jan or Flood in Franklin Park, right. and that literally sent me into the depths of like. I need to find out who, yeah, who like, where was great, this great record? and and like, recorded? Play drums on it, right? And it, and it,
1: you're exactly. Like just Muhammad, and then you found out that Melvin Sparks, and it just you know right. And, all, and then you guys awesome would players. have Melvin come play with you guys yeah. and
0: be like a f- piece of history. Just
1: reading the back liner notes and like connecting the dice of like who who are the guys in this band? And everything he plays drums on, I want now. right. You know, like Bernard Purdy. Anytime he's on a record, I want it. You know exactly.
0: Like, but you guys are responsible for that for me, and you see what you know. Why I'm sitting here talking to you and having this podcast is all rooted in a lot of these experiences but yeah. that is a embryonic awesome. like crucial and then since then you know I've been a huge fan of, of everything that you've done everything that Carl's done and I'd like to think I've kept my thumb on the pulse of like what you guys have been up to but um and the, they spread out and there's right. a lot of bands that well, like look are at the generation now. it's cool yeah it's yeah. a new generation that you guys are like godfathers to them
1: I'll tell you it's a, it's a lot <laughs> It's a lot easier to find musicians to play with than it used to be because that style, you yeah, mean? Yeah, because it used to be nobody had heard that stuff. So you right. had to be like, you know, put them on like a strict. The only only listen to this for a while to get all the like the bad like, you know, 80s-isms out of your right. out of your your style. Sure. Yeah, we all <laughs> like listen some core shit. Yeah, but um, I mean, you know, and then it's like everything's available. I mean, now I like a lot of music from the eighties and stuff too, but. But at the time, it's like just to find people who could relate to right. like that kind of, you know, funky stuff. It's, it was hard to, you know, everyone had all kinds of crazy bad habits and like just the wrong sound, the wrong instruments. And now people like that, all that music's like in the consciousness. Right. So it's much easier to find people who can relate to it, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so you basically, you know, did the Great Boys thing for a few years, like all the way up through Town Called Earth. And that was, you know, the full-blown studio album. And then you guys did, I remember you called them sidecar projects at right. the time. Gray Boy also sidecar And that's the 20th Congress and, and 20th, Carl's. Yeah. Um, and, like, I, I've um, always kind of yeah. wondered what, because each, the records don't sound the same. Like, you know, Give Up the Ghost is, doesn't sound anything like Get Thy Bearings. Nothing sounds like Spacesuit. So it's kind of just been your brainchild.
1: I've been sort of restless, like, creatively. Like, I... You know, Grey Boy, I like that it's got kind of strict parameters. And it kind of does. There's like some. It's rules. an aesthetic you have to play by. Yeah, right? there's you can't just do anything. I mean, you could stretch it a little bit, and mm-hmm. we, you know, maybe we can. There's a synthesizer available, maybe we can do that, but not too much, you right. know? And like certain kind of tones and certain kind of, like, you know, this is like. There's a there's an ethic to it. And it's cool because it keeps it from being polluted by just like. It's not express yourself time. It's got. There's a this is a vibe concept. This right. is what we're doing as a project. Um, and it's avoided all the trappings of like, we didn't try and make like a fucking electronica record. And we didn't right. try and chase any trends. It's just like, right. this is the thing. But to me, I get that satisfied by that. So when I do my own thing, I will want to try different things. I want to sort of experiment and screw around. And some of it's not even all the way successful to me. Like I just, I'm like, I got to get it out. I got to try out some different flavors. So yeah, I've made records that are more jazz influenced. Right. Things think they're more like, you know, um, naturalistic and rootsy sort of. And then some shit with like synthesizers.
0: You're good. Uh, well. Um, so,
1: and yeah, they, they've all been sort of different things. So 20th Congress, I mean, you know, originally that was sort of my touring band. And then I've made a couple records that I would call like a, more of a Solo. Strictly solo records, like super heavy, and those are yeah, those are usually with like other collaborators. Like Super Organ right. was sort of like my New Orleans record right. when I first moved here, and it's Johnny V and Stanton as the drummer. So I, okay. it's like sort of about that right. concept. And then I made a record called There Goes the Neighborhood with a bunch of classic, right. with Harvey Mason and Chuck Rainey and you know Phil Upchurch that crew because I've always loved those records. And right. I had an opportunity to, to play with like a session, like a classic session band, which was cool. Right. But 20th um, Congress itself, it's it's kind of always got some, um, some effects laden psychedelia involved. Right. And sort of funky shit. Right. You know? It's not like a jazz project, you know, necessarily.
0: Not in the traditional or yeah. even like loose I mean it's got sense. improvisation, but right. it's not,
1: we're not swinging, you know.
0: Right. But it's like cats from that world, yeah. you know. In some ways, I mean, yeah.
1: it's definitely an influence. I mean, that's like where I, my favorite shit is, based right. in the sort of larger context of what you call jazz or, you know, black black American, right, music. You know, jazz sure. rb, gospel, blues, but, but only, only in the broadest, terms, all encompassing <laughs> sense. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you know. You've always kind of had like partnership um, in the creative sense. So for years it was Chemi yep. with the 20th Congress, and I think lately probably Simon. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how much he has in the writing aspect, but he informs the presentation of your current yeah. band a, I a mean, lot. I mean, he
1: informed. He doesn't write the music. I I write all the tunes nowadays, but I definitely write them with the players in mind. Right. And Simon's a sort of the most. Um, unusual of all the guys in the band like the most unique as far as his approach so definitely write you know I always admired that about like Duke Ellington writing he'd write the backgrounds for the solos for the particular soloist right you know with the people in mind because they're going to play good on this it's not just like you play on my tune I wrote this for you because people do play different there's certain tunes I wouldn't bring to that band there's certain tunes I would bring to Stanton that are just Stanton kind of songs right I just know that he'll kill it and the things sort of based. No, it's not written about around a beat that I, I don't know what he's gonna play exactly. But just that something about it makes me feel like he'll dig into it. Right on. So and I, for different, and some things are right for Gray Boy, You know. Right. Like, so I sort of like when I'm writing the tunes, I think about what sort of band would be good on them, bring them to that project.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because you, Simon, go back with you to like the Fog City era, right? He's he's a. Uh...
1: I really met him down when I lived here. Okay and we played it the Bond time which I think that it's like the band that became Good Enough for Good Times okay I don't think it was called that then but it was it was Jeff and Robert from Galactic and Simon and I mm-hmm. playing sort of funk and soul jazz covers like a real normal you know weeknight bar right. <laughs> version of what we do but Simon was so unique even then and yeah. this was like years and years and years ago but um so I just kept in touch with them, and then he's gotten more esoteric and more interesting. I think he I think he's a really compelling musician. Very, I, I he's there's nobody really like him in the scene. He's he's so kind of crosses the line of what would be like sort of free music, you know, creative jazz, sure. or whatever, like out jazz. Yeah. With, with a knowledge of like funk music and even, you know, hip hop and stuff. Like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's a very avant-garde dude and, and player, and yeah, I just think he. I feel such like
1: it's gonna fall off the. I feel like we're gonna fall off the cliff all the time. It's right. Dangerous. Yeah. Which is I find real exciting. Sure, know?
0: especially in the moment in yeah. improvisational. It's
1: not some professional slick shit. It's like it's like yeah. always in the on the verge of destruction, which is like keeps me it's thrilling. alive. It's very yeah. exciting.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I want. I always wanted to ask because in a, one of your random or really like rare releases i never would have thought of you as a grateful dead guy um just because like my frame of reference we're talking about through you know the gray boys and the scene here but there's a dark star buried buried on on a record and i've always wondered because you're growing up in socal and like punk rock kids hardcore kids hip-hop is like that. In it, back then in the 80s like you, you didn't hang the I dead went through were,
2: definitely
1: like a, a, a dead not face liking the dead yeah yeah it was i like, went through a hating the dead sure thing. that's my what i'm parent, getting at my parents were deadheads and i grew up with that music so okay it was around the house but when i became a teenager and started rebelling i was like that stuff is like it's it just felt too low energy and like stonery and like right. not urgent and i had all this angst and i was like Where's your intensity? Where's your, mm. you know, it was like, it felt like so nebulous. Yeah, I get, no, <laughs> like I get so that. direction so directionless. It's like, you know, you hear these tapes and the thing would be cool and there'd be cool things, but it would just go on forever. And, and I was like, it definitely represented a certain thing about how I viewed the older generation. Right. And for my parents, the older generation were like square businessmen. Right. The, and they were be- rebelling against that. I was rebelling against the hippies.
0: <laughs> right, right. I knew that there was like a punk ethos that just frowned upon that way of music and living and everything. Yeah, just, was, so it, imagine it was, my surprise when, you know, yeah. come upon the dark stars. I was going to ask... To a
1: larger thing, it also seemed slightly bourgeois or like, you know, privileged rebellion yeah. in, in a way. Like it was rebellious, but it wasn't really no that confrontational because it was still like, you know... Some of, like, the gender roles were still kind of the same. That hippie generation wasn't, you know, not that they didn't do great things and change the world, but just it wasn't enough. (laughs) No, and a lot of people
0: abandoned ship once they, like, you know, they got a mortgage. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So to me at that time, but then later on, it started to make sense to me, and I started to see it as not that different from punk rock, and not that, you know, it's amazing how sort of, like, you know, when you're a kid that all those things so they seem much more in concrete like right. your belief system and and then I just started realizing that like those things were rebellious and strange too and they were super weird you, right. know, you know and it took crazy chances yeah they totally did it DIY style I mean yeah. they're they're, very they're about to fall rock. off the cliff all the yeah, time yeah they're very like yeah. dangerous but it's just a different aesthetic I didn't realize right. it's so accepted by the time I came to it you know right so um so yeah, I, 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 they're definitely a big influence on my music and like, in ways that even from when I was a kid. But then like my later appreciation for the improvisation and right. how it works, and, you know, playing as a group and dynamics and it's amazing. And songwriting is great. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they were my first favorite band and still probably my all-time favorite yeah. band and probably the, the reason again the reason why I'm here and you know, I still go and, to it
1: when I'm if I'm in the wrong kind of bad mood that shit will always. Cheer me up. Yeah, you know it, it's 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 great for it like is very soulful,
0: right? And you know I wanted to you know just finish up with uh, Gordon. Um, that's why I asked about the dead thing first because obviously yeah, the torch related, yeah. to fish. And again, I I was less surprised when I heard you joined up with Gordo because of the I already knew you had some dark star. You're a little familiar with yeah. that world, but I never would have still guessed. Um, but I
1: knew him, you know the. A few of those guys come to Greyboy All Stars games whenever okay. we play in Burlington and come to right. state, and we say hi to them. And I not I didn't really know Fish's music that well.
0: Yeah, that was yeah. going to be my next question. How familiar, was, how familiar?
1: By the time they were up and running, I was already off into this world of like trying to discover the rarest old jazz right. record. <laughs> I wasn't really keeping up with like what, I mean, there's there's whole like decades of radio that I just missed. Right, because I was just searching for this unusual music. Right. Blessing in disguise. Yeah, and so yeah, in some ways, it's cool that I, I, I didn't have all that in my head. But but now I go back. People will, will name some song that's like huge, and they're like, oh, don't you remember this? And I I totally missed it because I was just in my own little world. So Fish was touring, and I knew that they were like playing. You know, they'd be playing at the big venue while we were right. playing the little venue. But I didn't really know what they even did until later. You know.
0: Right. Well, I, so I've, I'm a big Fish guy, you know, I won't say how many shows I've seen, but it's a lot. And, uh, you know, there was always kind of like two parallels for me, like, you know, I grew up loving the dead, went and saw Jerry a few times before he passed, then like hit the road with Fish. And I missed decades of radio, too, but I wasn't like thumbing through the vinyl uh, crates I was on tour with Fish. Right. And that's, you know?
1: that's true of a lot of people in that scene, too. Yeah, yeah. They, they, well, they, found their, they found their weird music that they want to go down right.
0: the rabbit hole. But I'm saying, so I was just thinking about how, what got me here to bring a full circle to Jazz Fest for the first time in 2000 was when they announced the first Superfly Super Jam. It was Trey from Fish, Claypool, and Stuart Copeland from the police. Right. So I flew down from Burlington, uh, from college, and like, yeah, I'm still doing it. But uh, that was like the beginning. I guess Fish had played Jazz Fest in 96, uh, infamously. But like once the Oysterhead thing happened and the influx of like uh, tour... Were the
1: show that... that uh garage open yeah that's the, yeah, that's this yeah. show and they blew them off the stage yeah. you're
0: taking the words right out of my mouth i always tell the story it's like what got me here was that super jam of Oysterhead. The first Garage de Trois show opened, and they blew him off the stage. It was no disrespect to Oysterhead, but Garage de Trois was like on another level. I Remember hearing you say that? Out right when ever. it happened,
1: because I was already—I guess I was already down here playing gigs because I remember talking to Stanton sure. and Skerrick about that particular thing.
0: Yeah, it was an amazing thing, and i, I didn't even know who they were and who Stanton was, yeah. you know. But Skerrick did pretty, a badass.
1: He's, he he looped the last note of their the last like phrase of the set and kept it rocking when they left so cool (laughs) yeah man
0: so that was anyway that was like a seismic moment for me and i was going to say so here we are and like their scenes are not separate anymore like the same people that are coming to see you play with the gray boys are coming to see mike gordon here or going to fish shows and stuff and at what point in time did you like kind of uh just i don't know coalesce with that world like where you're like i'm going to join a band who's like, with a dude from fish you know well,
1: you know what's real interesting there's i have to give it up to our manager eric newson from gray boy he he had this i he t- we were like playing on this sort of what at that time was the acid jazz scene so there'd be right. every club would have one night where it'd be like their acid jazz night and they play a little bit of hip-hop some some Records from England with saxophone on them, right. and then some, maybe some rare group kind of right. stuff. And then we started playing as Graveyard on all these nights, and it was cool. But it was like a club scene; like people were dressed up, and it was not. And then some a few couple tapers discovered it, right? And and then Eric started coming. He had long hair, and he used to sell merch at the a lot for the with Dead and stuff, right? You know, but um, he might that might be not entirely. Um, accurate my characterization but something like i came from that scene you know oh, yeah. fish and all that stuff so he came and he said i have friends that would love your band would you let me book a couple of things and we started to play for this other crowd and they were all those like grateful dead kids right. and it was it was crazy the there energy people, was different and they were super into it and you could play super long and you right. know they just like it was instant it made sense to them yeah. and it made sense to us so so the crowd came way before I really thought about the, the musical
0: crowd. Okay. But right there was on. a
1: crowd crossover way before that.
0: It's interesting you say that, because I was talking with Shmines from Lettuce on the Pod a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying, like, jam band doesn't apply to the band, it applies to the audience. Yeah. So like, and you make a good point, and that's basically what you're saying There's right there. There's very few
2: people
1: I know from the sort of classic, like from the, from the, not from the last 10 years maybe, but like from anything before that, very few people that would characterize themselves as a jam band right they're all like a southern rock band or a right. funk band or a it's a know, bad word it's a know, curse word yeah i mean i don't even think you know I mean, fish started they definitely weren't thinking that no they they, uh, they were just a weird ass band <laughs> you know and right. attracted this crowd but there was no they weren't at least there was no self-awareness of being a jam band. right you know, they were like a band the things you had to have in common though is you had to improvise and you had to play long enough because there is part of that scene is people want a place to go and be and for better and worse do drugs and commune with people and hang it has to be more than just a concert it has to be part right. of a, a, an event that's part of your lifestyle you know yeah and that's the one thing all these bands have in common is most of the bands play long sets. Everybody improvises. It's going kind to of be different from different sets. You don't right. just see the same thing. You know, it's not professional in that way. Yeah. The, 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 the sort of risk and discovery element of it is compelling. Right. Even if the variety, like the the sort of um, scope of musicianship from barely can play to virtuoso, is all there. Like, right. They are all acceptable in that world. There's people who can barely you know, right. aren't, aren't great technicians. But sure. they, they understand how to make the music good. Yeah. Collect- it doesn't, the doesn't necessarily, because you can move your fingers the fastest, it doesn't right. make you make the best stuff. Um, right. And then there's people that are, you know, complete virtuoso, amazing players, you know. It's all kind of can exist in under that umbrella. As long as the music takes you on a journey, keeps you interested from night to night, you know, that
0: thing. Yeah, yeah, that's really eloquently stated. Um, well, I want to finish up with the mic thing and basically just ask, like, now that you've been working with him and and the other fellows in the band, it's kind of like a quasi all-star band, if yep. you will. Um, Are you able to like explore aspects of your own performing or playing, or uh, that maybe were dormant in your other projects, or yeah, or things def- that you never even tried? There's
1: definitely, um, there's both. There's things that I've always wanted to be, like sort of spaces that i wanted to improvise in that weren't particularly appropriate in any of my other things because there was always an emphasis on keeping it um, either danceable or really connected to blues and sort of american you know whatever that those those roots music traditions so this thing is there no rules in a way it's like a whole different you can you can play a long thing with no time sometimes Know, it's sort of accepting of all these things. He also is sort of forced me to play in places that I was uncomfortable because his songwriting is so different and, It's quirky. Yeah. So which is great, a great education too, to yeah. find how, how to like play like yourself, but on these structures that are very unusual. Yeah. And I just think he's amazingly compelling as a creative person. He's he's so fearless with his ideas. He's never like Oh, that's too weird. We're not gonna go for it. He's like, let's go for it. It might end up being too weird right. to perform, but we're gonna rehearse it and figure. We're gonna like follow every idea to its fruition and see what what happens. Right. You know? And it, it changed my writing. Like, spacesuit is sort of my post Mike Gordon record because he sort of opened up Pandora's possibilities Bands. for me. He's like, oh, well, just do whatever you want. I was like, okay. Well, if I do whatever I want, it's going to be a little bit more like this. Right. <laughs>
0: you know? That's awesome. Does this feel like a, a band unit like or maybe more like a 20th Congress thing where he's going to feel people are going to flow in and out? I think out.
1: it's definitely become a band. Yeah. When I first started, doing, I mean, it took a good like year and a half to feel like I wasn't just scared I was going to mess it up the whole time. Like <laughs> the whole tour, you're like, right, hope I don't mess up tonight. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. You know, there's so many songs and trying to get it all in your head. It's so unusual like to my, I can't pull up, I can't pull out any of my tricks to get through the thing, you know? Right. I can't just like play a high note on the organ turn on the thing and be like, you know, just, <laughs> Put a match organ in there. hero. Like you have to, you have to like be very conscious of what's happening and play for the song and so, well it took me a long time to get comfortable but like, something happened about a year and a half, year and year in where it's really started to gel and then like everybody started taking more personal ownership and like not just following Mike's lead but like sort of being like wait why don't we try like this And like, yeah so now it's got it's it's really like feels like a band yeah
0: awesome well, I look forward to hearing and seeing what comes like up a, in the he's future leader,
1: um, sort of philosophically and spiritually but he's not he's never been like a tyrant about it right he, he's like play play what mm-hmm. you think is good you know, right. and that makes it better you, know? you right get on. the best of everybody that way instead of everybody just like trying to interpret one guy's concept you know?
0: and that's a new paradigm for you because you've been the band leader for a really long time and I guess the Grey Boys are basically democratic mm-hmm. core four and now you're you're in somebody's band, that's yeah, why I asked but now it's starting to feel like a unit and less like his, just like yeah. That.
1: and I've done things where I'm a sideman before and I also do a lot of recording, so I I'm right. used to to working for somebody but yeah this is a this is an interesting one yeah you know it's the, most, the longest i've toured with somebody right where on. i was a sideman
0: so. cool man well i know you've got uh, some things happening here some folks that are looking forward to seeing you There's yep. a couple of parties so i'm gonna wrap it up okay but i want to say thanks so much that was it was a lot really of fun. really thanks. fun and i look forward to catching a few more of your gigs while i'm here great yeah thanks okay thanks. friend Jesse Page, owner, operator of the Blue Nile, fantastic music club on Frenchman Street in New Orleans. As I mentioned in my thank yous, Jesse's been very good to me and my people for some time now, and uh, independent of that, already was a huge fan of the Blue Nile itself and had been going to shows there for years. Nonetheless, uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to play a short interview I did with Jesse at the end of Jazz Fest 2019, where we reflected on some of the magic this year and years past. Uh, Talked about his path from bouncer to club owner, and also a little bit on our shared passion for the mighty Jamiroquai. So that's what you're hearing in the background. Classic deep cut, do you know where you're coming from? And, uh, yeah, Jesse and I were lucky to connect a few times seeing Jamiroquai return to the States in 2018. He flew out here to the Bay, Uh, saw each other at Halloween, Uh, and uh, anyway, just want to take an opportunity to say thanks again to Jesse, and please enjoy Short Chat with Jesse Page of the Blue Nile. And then we'll be back with the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week from The Quickening. Louisiana, it is the day after the day after Jazz Fest. And i um, sitting here with Jesse Page, and he's the owner, operator, and uh, basically the face of the Blue Nile. It's an awesome venue here in New Orleans where I spend a considerable amount of time, not only at this Jazz Fest, but many Jazz Fests. And uh, Jesse here has always been super cool to me, and super cool to just about everyone I know who comes through here, and he was nice enough to uh, agree to come on the show and just talk a little bit about, you know, his path to the proprietor of the Blue Nile, and also a little bit about New Orleans and Jazz Fest. So thank you.
2: Oh, thank you. It's good to be with
0: you again. Yeah, we've, we've seen each other a bit this year, some Jamiroquay adventures.
2: Yeah, pretty awesome. I was telling you last night, it's, it's such a blessing to see you three times in, in one year, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and then here in the middle. So yeah, once again, here we are again. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> 100%. together.
0: Yeah, well... uh Let's talk a little bit about last night here at the Blue Nile, just kind of to start, sure. because it's kind of a signature send-off show. Yeah. Um, the Nth Power always does the last hurrah.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's something we started a while ago. Actually, I believe it started when um, Papa Gros's phone kind of went into retirement for a while. And there's a, a void left on that Monday night. And uh, the, the void being in the city, you know, of a great closeout musical show. And, you know, we, we did the end of power and it just it took a life of its own. It became a real magical love fest over the years.
0: Yeah, and it continues to be that. Yeah, um, It's yeah. become quite a bit of a tradition.
2: Oh, it's definitely a tradition. Yeah. And uh, last night I, I thought was one of the best that I've ever seen them do, uh, especially bringing Nigel Hall back in and Weedy uh, on the Conga's. I mean, gosh, the the sound. I missed the sound. I didn't know how much I missed that sound of those voices being together. It's really, really something special last night.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. It was a very emotional reunion and a beautiful thing to see the old band back together. And it was also cool to hear some of the new material uh, that they're yeah. about to release on the new album, which they did in the first set. Um, You have a really interesting uh, programming here at the Blue Nile during Jazz Fest. Uh, It's a really excellent mixture of authentic local stuff and then uh, out of town artists with integrity and reverence for New Orleans. Um, And I know you work closely with the Backbeat Foundation and putting that together. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, let's see, we started, after Katrina and I started working on Hurricane Katrina, that is, we started working with uh, Backbeat Um, they had been doing some shows here and there uh, and I just really liked what they did. Um, Backbeat is very local and um, I can say you know what we do during Jazz Fest is what we do year-round so we we don't change who we are just because it's Jazz Fest. I think that's a little bit of what you were talking about where we go heavy local, heavy local because you know we have people coming in from all over the world what better time to showcase what we do year round to people that may not have seen us before you know they're they're visiting new orleans cuz they want to see new orleans we try to give new orleans by having big sam having you know Kermit Ruffins Kermit Ruffins plays here every friday night so we don't change that uh,
0: Cyril Neville Cyril
2: Neville i mean yeah. gosh the list of local musicians on these on these uh gigs has been you know very heavy very very uh something I'm very proud of that we, we can say. But also with the outside people, and when I say outside people, I mean people that aren't necessarily from New Orleans, they're family. You know, they right. they play here, uh, whenever they're coming through town, uh, they usually have a mix in with local musicians. Uh, very good friends, but like I said, family. People like Marco Benevento. Right. You know, I mean, Marco's family with us. Yeah. So, and not just him, I mean, I could go on and on. There's yeah. everybody, Nikki. Galassi, Adam Deitch. You know, Adam Deitch, big yeah. time. I mean, of course. Adam, it's always great to see those guys walk in the door, you know? Yeah. Whether they're playing or, like, you know, last night. Hanging out. Adam coming to see the show. Sput coming to see the show, you know? Yeah. It's always good to see those guys walking in the door.
0: I mean, yeah, that's a, just a hell of a lineup card on both sides of the fence. With the local stuff, like I said, you mentioned, you know, heavy local and authentic, you know, mixture of legends and, you know, people maybe on the next generation down. Yeah. And then the best of the best when you're talking about. Back after a brief pause for the cause, I was saying it's an excellent lineup card on both sides of the fence. And um, if you just mentioned Marco Benevento, Adam Deitch, and Sput, I mean, those are the creme de la creme of you know the generation behind a Cyril Neville, like, the, like my peers, if you will, uh, age-wise. And uh, I've always come to the Blue Nile for that reason. Is just that yeah. excellent mixture of the best of the best and the best of the local, and you know, there's a lot of crossover.
2: The fact that you just said you know the younger younger generation, I guess, it gave me a flashback to a, a Jazz Fest here, uh, because Weedy was here last night playing, and Adam was here. It just made me think of uh, we used to do these drum clinics with Stanton Moore on a Tuesday in the daytime, and he had brought in Idris Mohammed. Wow, uh, and that's the. I think that may have been the first time I met Weedy, and I remember Adam was sitting in the audience asking questions. So talk about generations coming together. It was really cool and really great to hear Adam asking very serious questions, uh, trying to gain some knowledge off of somebody like Idris Mohammed who, you know, yes, was was an amazing spirit, amazing drummer, just amazing, you know. Yeah. So But yeah, that is that is kind of what you say is true, everybody comes comes together here, you
0: know? Right. And, you know, it's a hot-button topic uh, locally with regards to the bookings and, you know, out-of-towners, gigs, so forth like that, and it's yeah. it, it can get un, uncomfortable in discussions and stuff. I mean, I'm in that world where people talk to each other yeah. about who's getting booked where, and I just wanted to pay you uh, some credit, some, some, you know, respect because you navigate that. I mean, you work both sides of the fence and, and do it like with grace and dignity on it. and there's never any question of integrity here or what you're trying to accomplish. I think like you guys really set the bar for how you can really have your hand in both and 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 do it, you know, with your head held high and full integrity. Well, you know, and, and I'd love to see that.
2: Yeah. yeah, I'd say I think a little bit of that comes because I am a musician, I am a percussionist, and I'm really I can't go anywhere during Jazz Fest. I mean, it's very hard for me to go anywhere. Right. Uh, to get to the fairgrounds is a great accomplishment uh, with the, our heavy schedule going on. So I kind of bring everything to me. I'm the biggest fan. Right. You know? And uh, that's why we have a lot of drummers here, obviously. You know. Yeah, it's, always. It's very percussion-centric at the Blue Nile. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I think comes naturally to us because I'm a fan. I'm a fan of New Orleans. I'm a fan of music um you know and and that that never stops so that's what we i think that's what you feeling when when you come to visit us and yeah you know it's
0: it's a great thing yeah it's a great room and a great vibe and like i said i'm i'm proud that i know you and oh, that yeah. uh i this is kind of like home base for me if yeah, you will yeah. when i come down here every year um interestingly enough like you started working here mm-hmm. at the door that's true that is true so Let's I mean, so go in the way back machine for a second. Hmm. Take us to when you showed up here to be like a quote-unquote bouncer or whatever, uh, and how you sort of navigated your way to owner-proprietor.
2: Yeah, well, I came here playing music, here being uh, New Orleans, uh, straight out of college. Uh, didn't quite know what I was gonna do, uh, but I, had, I was one of those people that visited New Orleans uh, to come see a friend, and when I left, I felt very sad and I couldn't understand what was going on. And just the plane ride, looking back at the city, made me sad. And every time I uh, you know, had a break, I was coming down here. And, uh, and I, I, I felt like I was homesick whenever I left. So to me, that just told me, like, okay, I was, I was born displaced and I found my way back home, you know? And so I was finding out it's very hard to be a musician and make money to live. <laughs> so um, I, I started working at a hotel, uh, front desk job, making seven dollars an hour, working for tips, doing everything I could. Uh, and that's how I learned a lot about the city because I was the bellboy, the front desk guy, the concierge. And I was sending people to go um, have a great time of what I imagined their great time would be in New Orleans. And of course I wanted them to come back happy. So I was very uh, into music and I thought, you know. This is why people come to New Orleans is to experience the real New Orleans, you know, the real deal. So I would go out to places. That's how I discovered the Blue Nile. You know, I used to come here and, um, being a Latin percussionist, they they used to have before we owned it, um, they had a very heavy um, Latin percussion uh, night, uh, you know, back on Fridays. I used to come down here and see the congueros and all that. Um, so anyway, to fast forward, I needed to make extra money. And so uh, the old owner of the Blue now was like, hey, you know, we need a door person. You can make some extra cash on the weekends. And so that's what I did. I worked at the hotel in the daytime. I worked at the, I worked the door at nighttime. And um, you know, I just wanted to prove myself that I was a hard worker and I'd hustle and I'd clean tables and I knew everything because I just loved this place so much. And um, eventually I became the manager and then eventually I became the, the GM. Uh, then Katrina happened. We lost everything, of course. I mean, we, we got hit by a tornado that spun off the storm uh, and we were shut down, so. Meaning
0: this area here got hit by the a. The Blue Nile. The Blue, Blue Nile specifically, wow. Took a
2: direct hit, yeah, uh, of a, a tornado that spun off the storm and it shut us down. Uh, it also provided some good things because that's why the room is so open now, we had to put some steel in here to uh, preserve the building. And when we put the steel in, we were able to take some of the old columns out to create better sight lines in the place. We were able to bring the stage up a little bit higher. Um, we were telling some stories about that last night where I, I used to pretend, we, uh, my wife and I, or she wasn't my wife back then, but now you know my, my wife, um, We were when we were redesigning the place in our imagination of. Uh, what can this be now that we are rebuilding after Katrina? Um, I used to stack milk crates uh, to pretend how high the, uh, the stage could be and put her in the back of the room and say, okay, pretend there's a six foot four person standing in front of you and I'm hmm. standing more. And I'd get up there and pretend like I was playing the drums and, and we've got the right height. Of, okay. You know, silly stuff like that, but you know, it just it's uh, reminded me of that. Yeah. And so after Katrina, um, the owner said, well, look, we don't really have the money right now. We don't know what's gonna happen. People weren't going out to pay for music. People were like, you know, rebuilding their houses. And and entertainment was, was, um, things were just very indefinite at that time. And then she said, I'll tell you what though, you can produce the shows. The money you make, the money you keep. You lose on a show, you lose on a show. And that comes out of your pocket. But it's it's whatever you want to do. So I learned how to book very fast. Because <laughs> Trial by Fire. Oh yeah, yeah. And I had some empty pockets and you know, but you learn how to do things right when That's I, when it's your money, right? Yes. And so that's when I went and got Kermit Ruffin's or not I wouldn't say got him, I I had talked to him and said, you know, I need a flagship type musician, and to me, Kermit is New Orleans, he is, yeah. he's a throwback musician, and um, just his spirit was, his spirit is an amazing uh, vibe, you know, and and just started going around Kermit, and I used to be a big fan of, of Big Sam, I'm still a big fan of Big Sam, but I used to go see Big Sam every chance I got when I was, you know, probably early 20s, very early 20s, he was in his early you know, I don't even know if he was in his 20s at that point but um but anyway got Sam to come in here and got all these guys who I befriended over the years of playing and you know it's it's hard to put everything into one one little uh the history uh into one little interview but uh of course you know it just makes me realize I I started managing I managed the Soul Rebels brass band for a while and got to know a lot of that side of the business, the other side. And in fact, uh, when we toured Europe, that was the first time I saw a real green room. And the way that they treat musicians in Europe, I was like, this is, this is how people should be treated in the States, you know, right. especially in New Orleans. And I think that helped me a lot too, because uh, I really liked how they admired musicians, because I admired musicians that way. And I saw what hospitality was, true hospitality on the other side of the stage behind the curtain, you know? How, how does a musician wanna feel when they come into a venue that they may not know, or, you know, when you come to that venue that you do know and it's your home, like the Blue Nile. You know, when Marco walks in the door, it's like he, he's walking into his house, right? You know? And it's like, oh, yay, Marco's back, you know? Or, I know I keep saying Marco, but he's, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of Marco, but- Of course. I, I, I hope the same for everybody. When I saw Nikki walk in the door, you know, big hugs, right. and it's like, welcome home, you know? So- sure. Um, so to answer your question in a short fashion, started as the door guy here and worked my way up. And um, I ended up buying the place uh, because I didn't want it to be taken away from me. And I felt that uh, it was the most important thing I needed to do was to save my money so that I could always have this. I never wanted to have somebody take it away from me, um, especially after Katrina when we didn't know what was going to happen, and I right. learned for the first time. So, so I ended up uh, saving my money for, gosh, like a decade. <laughs> and people laugh when I say it, but it's the truth. I ate tuna fish and ramen noodles, and I didn't go out. Uh, you know, my the club was where I went out, um, and so that that was um, you know July in July of two thousand sixteen. I thought I was very close to being able to buy the place because we had the owner said, you know, when I asked the owner, the, the original owner, um, I said, look, I need, to, I need to own this. And she said, well, I was just waiting for you to ask. <laughs> and she set a price for me and that was my goal. And so when I got really close, I had a very good friend that came to me and said, you own this in every way. Why don't you own it? And I said oh, I'm about this much away, and they said, okay. Here's here's a loan, give me a buddy loan, pay it back over three years. You you need to grab this. I ended up paying them back in a year, and uh, out of gratitude, I didn't you know take right. the money for myself before my debts were paid. And so yeah, the July first, two thousand sixteen is when I finally bought the place. I started working the door. Uh, September of 2003. thousand
0: three. 14 years or so, right? Yeah. Or 11 years, excuse me. 11 years.
2: I didn't know what I was doing when I was working the door. I learned by doing. I didn't know what I was doing when I started booking. I learned by doing. I didn't, you know, I, the whole way I've learned how to do this by doing. So, yeah, the place is, I'm, I'm very, the, the place is connected with me uh, because of what I've learned from right. growing up in it
0: yeah it's been it was like an education and like almost like a partnership a lifestyle all that wrapped up in one plus you were sacrificing your uh, other areas of your life you said you didn't go out much you were saving all your money so really you know everything into this goal and then when you achieve the goal um, I mean I remember the Nile going back to probably around when you started at the door we probably passed by each other you know, I come in. I had big dreadlocks back yeah. back in '03. Yeah. Um, and and I just needed to hear it from you because I always kind of wondered. And I, I I've been coming to Jazz Fest, my seventeenth year, my like twenty something time to New Orleans. Yeah. I have great relationships. I'm happy and privileged to have with folks down here. But I never connected with a proprietor of a club here like I have with you. You know. I mean, I've met a couple through the and through the years. I know a few of the promoters and stuff and. But it was just really remarkable how, like, you know, you sought me out and and introduced yourself and established this connection, and I have paid extra attention to how you do business and how, you, how the Blue Nile carries it, you know, and I've just been really uber impressed, and I think that you really set a bar here, and that's why, you know, I wanted to have you on the show, because, you know... Sometimes, especially in light of some things that have happened in clubs around this town and others, you know, somebody in your position can be demonized or made to look some kind of way that's unflattering. And here is somebody that's quite the opposite. You extended yourself to me, my mom, my friends, my partner. Um, You booked my favorite artists. You have affordable shows here. You navigate. Yeah, we definitely make sure of that. Yeah, I mean. Yeah,
2: we, we, we we do that on purpose. You know, we've. <clears throat> we've seen other people come through town and put some prices up there that's like how the power was supposed to go out every single night and do this we aren't greedy in the sense of making money off the shows um, we make an affordable ticket price that people can enjoy and get the musicians paid. right you know, that's pretty much our main goal of things That's also why uh, I ended up teaming up with BackBeat, because through BackBeat, we're able to um, use a little bit of the the foundation to, uh, for instance, outfit our green room for our artists, you know, some of the hospitality that we provide, the food and such. uh, It helps on the expenses of of doing something like this and doing it right, so, and it helps keep our ticket price low. So, so yeah i'm glad you noticed that because that's that is a, a goal of ours is to provide a, a great show for a great price you know a, a, a and you nice do, it well. price.
0: do it well do and, well and for the most part especially this year the room stays full you know yeah. near yeah. or at capacity more yeah. often than not
2: yeah i mean we, we had a great jazz fest every yeah. night you know and that, i think the the way we know that we're doing a good show or you know the, at least from my perspective is not about counting the dollars. You know, we're not sitting there counting. We're doing a good thing. You know, we're doing a good show, and that's why I'm so excited when you walk in the door, and I'm like, "Yeah, uh, what's up, man?" You know, because I feel like, okay, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the right, right show. On. You know, this is this is how it's supposed to be done. If these people are showing up, we're not doing so bad. You know, so
0: that's a hell of a compliment. So thank you. Yeah, um, right on, man. and yeah, obviously, I feel strongly about what you do here and and who you are, and it's like. A, really cool and i would say like uh, just makes me feel very good to have a relationship as an out-of-towner who comes here and enjoys himself uh to have somebody like yourself like extend yourself to me and my people um and also host you know some of the best shows at jazz fest year in year out and work with an organization like backbeat Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just really admirable so that's that's in a nutshell why I wanted to have you on the show because I felt like people should know uh, how you do it here and, and if, I don't want a huge influx of people to start coming to the Blue now because then we're going to start having too many sellouts and people not getting in and stuff but I, I want to see you guys continue to succeed and continue to, you know, do it the right way yeah. and, and, you know, that's something I'm honored to just even have a ringside seat for you know
2: no, thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I want to finish with one non jazz Fest, non-New Orleans Okay. Uh, you know, we connected over to Miroquay. Yeah. You know, they hadn't played in the U.S. in 13 years. You told me a time or two that they're they're really your favorite band. There's no doubt. Yeah, okay, oh, no yeah. doubt. There There's we go. no doubt. My
2: uh, favorite band on the planet.
0: That's amazing. Man. On. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, in a nutshell, how did you come to find their music? Because they're not something that was really big in the States, except for that one brief because blip of time.
2: I was in a drum and bugle corps called the Bluecoats Drum and Bugle Corps, and we toured. And there were a lot of Canadians in that core. and I had a friend. Uh, his nickname was Canuck. <laughs> <It's, laughs> appropriate He was like, "Hey, man, this we're doing with uh, cassette tapes and Walkmans, you know, right. Sony Walkmans." And um, you know, you're on the bus. That's where I learned about touring. You know, we lived on a bus, all, a charter bus, all summer long, touring the entire country, playing night after night shows, every night of the uh, summer, in a different city. So we had long bus rides. And this cat was like, hey, man, uh, you got to check out this band. It's Jamiroquai. I was like, Jamiro, what? What are you saying? And he's like, just put it in your Walkman and listen to it. And I was in love instantly. Yeah. I mean, I just, the percussion in it and uh, JK's voice and I mean, just the layers that I, I could go on and on, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Jamiroquai is, it really, it's something that uh, moves me. It's something that I listen to Jamiroquai every day, seriously, like in the gym. Yeah, that's I listen to uh, the new out al- newer album Automaton. Yeah, and then some of the old stuff, Little L, and you know, that's my hype music. And, yeah, and I'm just so impressed with the musicianship uh, to see J.K. this year and to see him from the perspective that you know, you and I were very blessed. Yes, and, we were. I would never imagine in my life that I would be standing on the stage with Jamarcus eating dinner with. Derek McKenzie the drummer yeah. I mean it's been a magical year and um to see the way that he conducts it it did not it not only didn't disappoint but it blew me away yep. you know it blew me away to see I don't think enough people know how great that band is and how great uh JK is at being a conductor not just a right. lead singer but musical I director I you got to hang with him and uh, possibly interview mm-hmm. him but uh I didn't get to interview him, but I did have a, a hang film, you know. and,
0: and a few a few questions, and it was cool. Yeah. One day maybe the interview, but, but it was just it was a uh, privilege and an absolute dream just just to share ten minutes conversation with him moments after he performed. But yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying when I say connected with you. Like we both have those really strong feelings mm-hmm. about Jamiroquai, the music, who they are, what they are you with, know, the, and we shared that. You know,
2: that everybody thinks that. I mean this is just a a theory but uh, I think it's one of those bands that everybody thinks like this is my band and nobody else knows about them and and, and then that was another cool thing it was the very underground thing to like go out to San Francisco my first time ever going to San Francisco and believe it or not seeing that I have all all those friends out there but um, to see other people I knew oh you like Jamaica what right and realize oh man there's a lot of underground Jamiroquai fans, yeah. and it was really great to see. I mean, I think we, you and I connected even more yeah. because of that. And exactly. It was, you know, I didn't even imagine that I would see them twice on, once on each coast, yeah. you know. And um, Paul from uh, Bear Creek and, and uh, you know, all the other great things that Paul's done invited me to Halloween. And yeah. uh, when he found, you know what? We were sitting, uh, it was one of those late nights after the show at the Blue Nile, a jazz fest. Uh, my wife was hanging out with Paul, talking. She's like, Jess, you got to get up here. She's telling all about our experience seeing Jamiroquai. And he's like, I didn't know you were such a big Jamiroquai fan. I was like, oh, yeah. And she's like, he's the biggest fan. He's like, well, you got to come see him at my festival. So we went over there. And next thing you know, we're standing on the stage. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, this is crazy. And then that was where Ryan Zoitis yep. made the incredible solo. And
0: hey, Floyd. And then him and Benny came out and did a... Yep. Uh, what did they do? Star Child, Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. It was an amazing night.
2: Man. Everything. Yeah. And I got to introduce Deitch and, and uh, Derek McKenzie to each other. And, yeah. You know, I mean, it was just, the, it was a magical, That's a thrill. magical time. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. it's, it really recharged me and it, it's carried me through uh, two jazz fests now, you know.
0: That's amazing, man. I feel similarly, you know, it was a huge part of my year and connected me with you and so many others from coast to coast and and again, a deep bow to Paul for, you know, making a lot of our dreams come true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well,
2: I mean, that's I got to watch you uh, propose. Yeah, so, yeah. That was a real, real magical time. Yeah,
0: it really was. Uh, it's a good note for us to end on. We're, we're going to do it next year. Yeah. We'll have a whole other year between. I don't know if we'll have as good a year as we had last year. Maybe. <laughs> but uh, we'll stay in touch, obviously, and uh, we'll do this again at the end of Next Jet's Fest. I want to thank you, uh, Jesse Page from the Blue Nile. This is B Getz signing off for the Up for Life podcast from New Orleans, Louisiana, Jazz Fest 50. And we'll see you next time. Thank you to my man Jesse Page and Tony at the Backbeat Foundation for a fantastic run of shows at the Blue Nile and large up Jesse for coming on the show and sharing a little bit of his story, his perspective, his wisdom. Hospitality at the Blue Nile is second to none and uh, Up For Life podcast is just stoked uh, to be... uh, on people like Jesse's Radar as well as the great Robert Walter so huge thanks and large up to Jesse and Robert as well as everyone else who took some time out for the Up for Life podcast over the course of the super busy two weeks of Jazz Fest I'll have a lengthy as usual and uh, detailed look back at some of my favorite music and events and just situations that make jazz fest what it is that should come out on live for live music sometime in the next week or so toying with some ideas to approach it a little bit differently but it'll be you know primarily what you expect from me which is a gonzo take man on the scene jazz fest 50 and i'm looking forward to sharing some reflections And again, allow me to say thank you to each and every one of you who has approached me, written to me, stopped me, told me that you're enjoying the Up For Life podcast or continue to enjoy the articles that I create on our glorious music culture. It's humbling and heart-filling and empowering to be stopped whether it's by myself or with Alicia or my mom or whatever walking around New Orleans and and people just tell me that they dig what I get to do or dig what I create or just enjoy following me and uh that's that's very fulfilling to hear for all of us but particularly myself because uh, that's the battery in my back that keeps me doing the damn things so a deep bow of gratitude to all who uh empower me to keep on keeping on and with that brings us to the uh, vibe junkie jam of the week and of course we're looking towards the Crescent City of New Orleans and a fantastic young band that's actually been after it a while but uh starting to break through a little bit Uh, they had a record called Begin Again come out last year put it in my top 18 of 2018 and uh band is called The Quickening. They are future guests on the Up For Life podcast, as I chatted with them for a few minutes one day while I was down there, but I'm anxious to spread uh, the Quickening gospel because, you know, there's a lot of bands that are sticking to the script when it comes to the New Orleans sound or doing covers or just kind of playing it safe, but not these guys and Gal. They are really kind of carving their own path creatively, artistically, etc., and doing it with a certain amount of panache and swagger that, you know, makes them stick out from some of the rest, and they had a pretty active jazz fest for a band on the come up, and uh, we're going to hit the road soon, and we'll find out a little bit more about them when they uh, come on the show in the next week or two, but uh, I decided to go with Jesse Page of the Blue Nile for this episode, and we'll play a favorite song from the Quickening for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. I'm going to play Use the Breeze, the Pawdy remix. Uh, The regular Use the Breeze appears on Begin Again, their sophomore LP, as does this remix. And for whatever reason, the remix really speaks to me. It's got such a warm, analog production to it, and super sexy vibes from Miss Murray. And just all-around unique sound on the remix so check out the original use the breeze also really lush track but i'm gonna play the use the breeze party remix from begin again from new Orleans own the quickening and uh, with that we'll wrap it up for episode 16 of the up full life podcast Uh, the beginning and the end of this episode you're hearing from stanton and skerrick's 20th jazz fest celebration Featuring Stanton Moore, Garrick, Scott Metzger, uh, Andy Hess, and Robert Walter on keyboards. So, enjoy the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. We'll see you next time on the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy.